Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the updates on the great writers we have coming up over the next few weeks. And if you want to see photos of the studio and the cocktails getting made, check out my Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please leave a comment. I want to hear about the writers you want to hear on this show. I've been getting a lot of great booking ideas from you guys. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're with number one best-selling author, Brad Meltzer. Brad is the author of fiction, nonfiction, books for young adults, TV shows, and comic books. He can count among his fans former presidents George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, both of whom have helped Brad with his research. He's participated in a U.S. intelligence work group that included the FBI, CIA, and Department of Homeland Security, in which they brainstormed ways in which terrorists might attack us. I just finished his novel, The Escape Artist, a thriller, which was fantastic. He's such a talented writer, and I'm thrilled he's here with us today. Brad, welcome. Thank you, Doug. I appreciate that. Now, your drink order today was sort of open-ended, just tequila in any way. So I chose Añejo tequila for us. Yes. Well, I, that was what, you know, they said to me, it has to be a drink. And I was like, you know what I want? I always want to have something that I haven't had. Like that to me is much more interesting than my favorite drink. Some people need their favorite drink. I'm like, my favorite drink is still out there. It's still, you know, I don't know what it is. It could be something I don't know. So oh, I love that. The creative juices are still flowing. That's it. Okay. I mean, I don't feel like I got to give up. Like you hit 50 and you got to give up and be like, I've dis- I've tasted everything in the universe and this is the answer. No. It's, well, it's... I'll give you a little background on this then. Yeah, it's tell me. Añejo tequila is sipping. Now, you can see there's a fairly big dent I was going to say, this is, I did walk in and notice. I was like, <laughs> this is not broken open for us here. Well, only one other time. Patricia Cornwell and I oh, did all I like... this in one episode in which they had to wheel us both out of here. I bet. So. Although in your case, I don't know if you want to go that big early because well, as a I, Michigan I'm, uh, fan, you've got a big night ahead. I have a very big night ahead. My son is at the game. I'm, nice. I was at the Rose Bowl with him. And uh, we were going to be this, – this is going to be the fastest book sign I've ever done because tonight <laughs> is the Michigan championship. And I'm going to be like, kid, here's your book. Kid, here's your book. And kid, here's your book. We're done. That's great. Yeah, so listeners know we are recording this episode the day of the national championship. And as you listen to this, you can say – Meltzer's in for some heartbreak. What, you know, or, since we have you here, what, what's your prediction on the listen, score? Listen, I mean, as a Michigan fan, you're trained that something's going to go wrong. That's what we know. <laughs> we're, we're at Charlie Brown in the football. We know that. So no Michigan fan starts going, I think we're going to win, guaranteed. Like, it's just not how, like, that's how Alabama approaches the universe. We approach it from a very different way. Was the big chill, that was, that was Michigan fans. Oh, Lawrence right? Kasdan, of yeah. course, by, okay. who was a Michigan alum. That's Great. why, yeah. One of my well, favorites. Cheers. Okay, cheers. Good to be here. Great to have you. Thank you. I'm an Eagles football fan. Mm, that's no, good. I'm sorry That'll for you. Started. This is actually good. Yeah, I like it. Good sipping tequila. Yeah. Yeah, so as, as an Eagles fan, I can relate. It's like we're in the middle of this postseason Listen, wait, wait. You're an Eagles and... fan, yes, but you, you won the Super Bowl. We did you, have you one. Know, like, so you know, like I'm a, I'm a Giants fan and a Dolphins fan. That is, I mean, and more of a Dolphins fan now because I grew up as a Giants fan and 
you know, again, we're having a great season, but and I hope we win the Super Bowl, but my kid has only been to one playoff game. He's 22. He's yeah. never seen anything. Yeah. Like, so this years. is the Shula I mean, years were not great, there, of course. Great franchise, but great. yeah. All right, so Michigan undergrad. Yeah. And were you a big football fan? You know, I was... I mean, it seems like going to a big-time football school. You can't go to Michigan and be like, ah, oh, it's a football school? I didn't know, (laughs) right? It is. Uh, My my first writing assignment ever was um, the Miami Herald ran a contest that said, tell us your best vacation. And when I was in high school, my family didn't have any money, so... We, I only went on one vacation the whole my whole life with my family, which was like my senior year of high school. But I wrote um, to the Miami Herald that my favorite vacation was going to a Michigan football game and the roar of the crowd and the way the stadium looked and even the smell of you know all the food that was yeah. there. And I never went to a Michigan game, but I wrote it and I won, I think, second or third place. And I was just like, wow, that was awesome. And so going to Michigan to me was like, Letting this imaginary dream come true, and of mm-hmm. course, the football stadium is a is a time machine that takes you back immediately to yeah. being eighteen years old. Yeah, but I mean, such an energy rush. I was down in Alabama recently for something, and there wasn't a game going on at the time, but I did walk into the stadium, which apparently holds more than a hundred thousand people. I mean, a couple of towns can fit in there, no, and, and we hold one hundred and ten thousand because we have to hold we hold more than anybody. And if anyone builds something bigger, we will build something bigger. <laughs> I promise you to make it bigger. Right, it's like the Chrysler Building. Or the thing whatever, was that when know. I was when I was in my uh, my freshman or sophomore year, the stadium at that point held 101,000. And it's all bleachers back then. It was just straight bleachers the whole way around. And then I came back my next year, and it held 107,000. And all they did is paint every seat a little closer to each other. They didn't add a single seat. So it just squished everyone together, which I thought was genius at the time. But now as an adult, I'm like... Get off my lawn, kid. <laughs> but now it's 100. That's great. I did not know that story. That's funny. So then from undergrad, you go Columbia Law. Yep. And, uh, but I also read you were already drafting your first novel. Yeah. The, so what happened was I came out of Michigan. I had all this debt to pay off. And this guy in Boston, um, Eli Siegel, may he rest in peace, said to me, he was a business guy, and he said, I'm going to take you under my wing. I'm going to give you, uh, be your mentor. I'm going to give you a job come to Boston, move your stuff to Boston. If you love it, you'll stay. And if you hate it, you'll leave with some money in your pocket. And I was like, that's a good deal. I'll take that. And so I moved my stuff to Boston. I moved everything to Boston. And the week I get to Boston, my boss leaves the job. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, crap. And I, I thought to myself, I've wrecked my life. I, I've just wrecked my life. So I did what anyone would do in a situation where you think you've wrecked your life. Doug, I know you would do this. In a moment where you thought you wrecked your life, I said, I'm going to write a novel. And I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't. I, I was a history major. I didn't know anything about writing novels. But I thought, at 22 years old, everyone has one story in them. I'm going to take my shot. And I'm going to write my novel. And I wrote my first novel in that year. I applied to law school and I deferred the year. I was still working full time. Okay, so this is all in your deferred. This is year. all in my deferred year. Yeah. I have this one year between law school and college. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working full time. But I'm, I can either watch TV at night or try and be productive. And so for one year, I'm like, I got one novel in me. I'm going to try. That novel got me 24 rejection letters. There were only 20 publishers. I got 24 rejection letters, which means <laughs> some, some people, people really were writing me it. twice. I mean, they were like, in case you missed that first letter, Brad, that book sucked. Um, what happened was I fell in love with the process of writing. Yeah. And I said, you know, everyone always says, if you, know, if, if you want to figure out what you love and find someone to pay you to do it. 
but I didn't know what I loved. And in that year, I found what I loved, and it was it was talking to these imaginary. But you went friends. to law school in the end. Still. I did. I, I mean, went to law to school. Columbia Law School. Was yeah, no yeah. Joke. I mean, no. Been. Trust me, I was as surprised as you are to hear that I was there. The um, the truth was is, I went to law school not for ideas for novels, but I didn't want my dad's life. My dad struggled with money. Mm-hmm. My dad when I went, and this is probably more important to the origin story than anything. When I was thirteen years old. My dad was 39, and he lost his job in Brooklyn, New York. And what was he doing? He was just working in the schmata business, really. I mean, he was just—he was working in a card store, actually, in Penn Station by that point. But he just—he just couldn't make jobs work. And mm-hmm. he had $1,200 to his name because he was never good at saving money. And he said, "We're going to have the do-over of life, as if it was a game, as if this was a fun thing. And we're going to move to Florida, have the do-over of life." And I was just like, I just lost my life. I mean, and one day I came home, your dad's home at three o'clock, you know something's wrong. I'm like, and and we moved everything to Florida. We started over from scratch. He had $1,200 to name, no job, no place to live. And it wasn't just being worried about money. How many, we, do you have siblings? I have a sister. Yeah. And I, we were worried about safety at that point. And, and we were just like, you know, are we going to be okay? And I didn't want that life. I knew growing up that at the end of every month, don't answer the phone, don't answer the doorbell, because that's when oh the landlord gosh. comes and yeah. that's when the credit cards call. Like we knew that as kids growing up. That was like a part as 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 you know, as simple as don't jump in a white van with people offering you candy. Mm-hmm. You knew, oh, end of the month, don't pick up the phone. And I didn't want that. Did I was he terrified. do any better down in Florida? Florida was really good to him because my dad was a salesman. He was a sales mm-hmm. guy, but he never had the good thing to sell. And he, he became an insurance agent, actually made money and he started saving for me for college the year before I went to Michigan. And what my dad should have done when I got into Michigan, I was the first in my family to go to a four, in my immediate family to go to a four-year college. My dad should have said, you're going to Florida to a state school. That's what I can afford. And that's it. And I got into Michigan and my dad looked, I'll never forget. And he, I don't think I've ever told this story. He, um, he looked at me and he said, I'm going to get you to that school. And he should have never done that. That was idiocy. Mm-hmm. God bless him. May rest in peace. My dad got me there, uh, and it took him dead, and it took credit card debt, and it took everything he could figure out how to get me through it, but he got me through it, and I just, in going to law school, I was terrified of having his life. I didn't go because, you know, I, I wanted to write. I knew at that point I wanted to write, but I didn't want to wait tables. I couldn't afford to have that writer's life where my parents were taking care of me so I can go follow my dreams. I wanted, if this writing thing doesn't work out, I need to be able to find a job. And if I can't find that job, I'm going to have my dad's life. And that was a terrifying idea for me because money was something that for me growing up caused a lot of heartache for my parents. It just was, it was a lot. It's so interesting, you know, because sometimes I ask people, what's your, what's your advice? And they'll say, you know, professionally, do what you love. And it's like, well, that sounds really great, but that's not practical for everyone. Well, and, and you know, some people actually that. have to put food on the table. Well, that's and doing the thing is, doesn't I, always get you there. And I'm, you know, if I'll, this will tell you more about me than probably anything I say today. This is how I learned to swim. I was at a camp up in upstate New York back then. And Joey Tusa's, I couldn't swim in the deep end, never swam there. Joey Tusa's younger brother, who was three or four years younger than us, I saw him jump off the diving board into the deep end. And I was like, that little bastard can swim before I can swim. <laughs> I'm friggin' jumping off. And I get on the diving board and I can see the lifeguards there. So I'm not crazy. And I jump in the deep end. I don't jump straight. I jump diagonally because I'm not a total nut. And I get, you know, I, I figure out in that moment how to get to the wall. And when I wanted to get the training wheels off my bike, I saw Ellen Nagel's dad took her training wheels off her bike. God know where my parents are in all these stories. Okay, it's the one thing I'll say, like, because I never tell these stories, but I think as of saying it out loud for the first time, I'm like, where were my parents? Ellen Nagel's parents 
her dad, I'll never forget, took the train wheels off her bike and I said, can you take them off mine? And he did. And he held her bike and helped her ride. And I went to the hill that was behind our apartment oh, building. Man. And I just went down the hill. And I made it down the hill. You made it. I Good. made it. I didn't crash. I crashed once after that. But I made it. And to me, I will always, I'm not afraid of failure. That's the one thing. Yeah. I'm not, I may not be the best writer. There are better writers. There may, I may not do everything right. But I'm not afraid of failing. That is a whole mindset, a and critical that, mindset. And, but it's not yeah. because I'm brave. It's just that was the need I had when I was little to get things done. I needed that. My parents weren't there. I and mean, they were there. They loved me. They took care of me. They, I, I'm not complaining at all about my childhood. But as a need, I needed to jump off the diving board. As a need, I needed to have that job and write. Like, mm-hmm. But I always jumped a little bit to the left or I made sure that there was parents around in case I fell. Like it was a it was a brave jump, but I made sure it wasn't a reckless one. There was yeah. some net there. And that to me is like the follow your dreams thing. Like I actually believe that you should leap in life. I think life is a trapeze mm-hmm. and you should leap, but don't leap without a net. Yeah. Well, there's leaping and then there's also the resilience. So 24 rejections. So what what happened to that novel? Is that did it ever get out of the bottom drawer or is it sitting You know, it's still sitting on my shelf published by Kinkos, um, you know. <laughs> and if you laugh at that joke, you're old. You know, <laughs> right. it's Kinkos. Um, but no, it's still you know, I, I could publish it today, I guess, you know, and try and say Here, here's my first novel. But I I firmly believe that you should put out your best work. Yeah. And and that book I could take what I know now and you know and and turn it into a better book, but it's like to me taking a a fifty seven Chevy and I can put a muffler on it so it doesn't rumble as loud, and I can put a you know uh you know some m p three player so it can play my iPhone, and I can put better wipers on it so I can actually see when I drive and you can turn all those things into modern things, mm-hmm. but when you do that, you rob it of its soul, yeah, and I love that that first book. For whatever it is, it's me falling in love with the process of writing. I yeah. loved it, and I, I said I joke, and I, you know, I, it's worth more to my kids when I'm dead. Like it'll be the the lost novel, but I think my job is to put out the best work I can, mm-hmm. and that's where well, I you stand can, you know, out. when you donate your papers to a Columbia or whatever right, library right, right, somewhere, right, right. it'll be in there, and then people will study your your trajectory. And I, I want to come back to your process in in a bit too. Um, I love that you talk about loving the process. Um, but before we get there, 1996, so you came up at a time when the internet was coming up, like Nelson DeMille, first book in 1978, he he was not uh, at a state of technology as you were. So I read you had in 1996, one of the first author websites. I had the first author the website. First. The New York Times said, so it's a fact, um, the New York Times said I had the first ever author website. I don't know how they figured it out, but I I actually know why, is because my buddy... This is in 1996. My buddy worked at IBM, mm-hmm. and he called me and he said, "Hey, we got this thing called websites. You want one?" <laughs> and I'm like, "I don't know what that is, but sure, give me one." And he put together a website. I didn't even literally know what it was. And I had it, it was tenthjustice.com and bradmelch.com. He figured out how to make both URLs go there, which was bananas and magic to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had it, and uh, we didn't know what to do with it. We started putting stuff up, and I remember at the time when my first book came out. I went to Amazon headquarters. The book started taking off, and, and Amazon headquarters in Seattle had just started. They had launched, and, and they took me around in this brand-new company called Amazon and said, you know, we have this thing on our on our website where you can leave reviews for books. And Tell me, this is in our lifetimes. You know? Right? Like- <laughs> I mean, I feel like such an old man saying this, but it's just true. And they said to me, you know, there are a lot of people here who sell more books than you sell. You're a brand-new author. No one's heard of you. But no one has more reviews than you do. 
and they pulled out, again, to show you the data, a file folder, because at that mm-hmm. point they printed everything out. And they pulled out a file folder that was like, you know, an inch thick with all these reviews that said I was the greatest author and the worst thing to ever happen to literature. And they were just fighting back and forth. Uh And I was like, this is the internet in printed form, like as we know it today. But it was because all of our early readers were in their 20s like I was when I was starting out, and they could figure out the technology before anybody. And that was the only reason we had a website. That is that is amazing. God. So and you're staying current with it. I know you're you have a big Instagram presence. Are you on TikTok, BookTok, all that I stuff? I do. You know, I have it. The only thing all I'm on everything, but the only thing I do on TikTok is I offer writing advice. It's mm-hmm. the one thing I've left pristine because I'm not going to dance because I I don't want people to go blind and um and it just embarrasses my daughter so much. She's like, you cannot be on TikTok. Dad. <laughs> Which of course that day I was like, I'm getting a TikTok account to spite you. Um but I am on all that stuff because yeah. that's that helps. Good. I mean, I, I for a time Facebook and then and then Instagram. But I, I from what I understand, I'm I'm not yet. I will soon, I guess, get on BookTok, TikTok. But apparently, that's the place now to really. Yeah, get I don't do the BookTok thing. Stuff. I just publish like book advice because I feel like that I should yeah. put back in the universe. But um, everything else I'm on, I do it all myself. I write all my own stuff. I have someone who helps me mm-hmm. like just put it on every page at once because that's like a half hour with all the, you know, between Facebook and Twitter and threads and Instagram. But I write, I don't, I'm a writer. I can't just have someone say like, I think this is great. You know, these Rice Krispie treats, TM, like I, I yeah. can't do that. Like it has to be my voice. And the funny thing was, is they did an analysis of our social media and they said we have, you know, a ton of teachers which I understand. We have a ton of thriller readers, which I understand, but they said we have more like writers than just about anyone, which I thought was fascinating. And I'm like, we're really screwed then. You know, like we were re- <laughs> don't, do not listen to what I'm doing. So jumping forward a bunch of years in 2014, you launched the I Am series, which is amazing. Anyone who's ever set foot in a Barnes and Noble or any bookstore has seen these books. I've bought several for my kids. You, you know, I Am Amelia Earhart. I Am Jackie Robinson. Your latest is I Am Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which is a is a great one, and that's really what you're mainly out on tour for now. Yeah, so this is the 10 year anniversary. We started 10 years ago. Um, you know, I was I was doing what every other thriller writer does, murdering people day in day out. Right, that was my job. This is going to be the best segue between murder and children's books. Um, <laughs> but the truth was, I had my own kids, mm-hmm. and as I got older, I was like, I want to give my kids better heroes to look up to, heroes of perseverance and kindness. And humility, remember when humility was a great American value, which we've lost. Um, And I said, we started with, I'm Amelia Earhart. And I told my daughter, I'm like, look, Amelia Earhart's so amazing. Look, she she flew across the Atlantic Ocean. Look at that. And my daughter was like, big deal, dad. Everyone flies across the Atlantic Ocean. She was not impressed, right? And (laughs) But then I told her this true story that when Amelia Earhart, and this is true, was seven years old, she built a homemade roller coaster in her backyard, took a wooden crate, put roller skating wheels on the bottom of it, shoved it to the roof of her tool shed, came flying down the side and crashes and gets up and yells, this is awesome or whatever she yells at the time. But she says that feeling when her stomach bottomed out from under her, Mm -hmm. she wanted that feeling back again. And that's the first time Amelia Earhart ever flew. She was seven years old. This, this sounds a bit like you and your training wheels coming it's my train. It is, well, that's why it appealed to me. I was like, this, I get this story. Um, in fact, I am totally Amelia Earhart. And, um, and, it was my daughter who said to me, I like that story. Mm-hmm. And that was the secret sauce. It was not telling you the famous part of them, mm-hmm. but the part when they were kids. And we started this children's book series, myself and Chris Eliopoulos, who's our incredible artist. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's it, as you know, it's illustrated kids' books. You know, for ages like four or five to 12, 
like in cartoon form, but we start with, I'm Amelia Earhart, I am Abraham Lincoln, I am Rosa Parks, my son loves sports, so I was like, forget a millionaire overpaid athlete, here's I am Jackie Robinson. Yeah. And we just started doing them. There's That's no- the only rookie card in all of sports worth having. You have you have a Jackie Robinson? Yeah, yeah. I mean, not a, not in great condition, but Doesn't I just matter. felt like no, no, that's no. like I'm, that's yeah. the one rookie card that 100%. matters the most. Uh, yeah, I have a I have a baseball. That is the one that is one of my nice. prized possessions. And um, but I chased that. You know, I chased mm-hmm. that for years and years and years. Like that is absolutely the one worth having. And I said, this is what we should do. And and I went to the publisher. I said, they said, oh, it's so cute. You want to do I'm Amelia Earhart, I'm Abraham Lincoln, two cute mm-hmm. books for your kids. And I said, no, no, no. I want to build a library of a hundred. And they didn't laugh. And they said, okay, you're on. And so now we're 10 years in. Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Mr. Rogers are the two newest. It's our 31st and 32nd hero in the series. And there's no politics about it. Like, I'll come here. I was telling you before we even started, you know, I go to Fox News and Glenn Beck, and I go to NPR and Morning Joe. And I love that there's no politics about it. It's like, these are people we can agree on. We have, in the back of this one, Sandra Day O'Connor's in there, Amy Coney Barrett's in there, and so is Katanji Brown-Jackson. You know, that's actually one thing I was going to mention about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. First of all, I'm, I'm a fan of hers. My wife was a lawyer, and she, for for uh, her reporting career, covered the Supreme Court to start. Our son, when you know he's now in eighth grade, but when he was in fourth grade, did a report. He had to pick someone inspirational. He picked Ruth Bader Ginsburg four years ago and did this whole video thing that was very funny. Um, but one thing that I learned about her when I learned more behind-the-scenes stuff is that it wasn't political. It's almost like, to come back to sports analogies, the fans of the Yankees and the fans of the Red Sox hate each other, and they get in fights in bars. But the Yankees and the Red Sox, the players, often are kind of buddies and go get a drink together in the bars. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as much as the people who are political, you know, they would look at Thomas or Alito or Scalia and hate them and and vice versa. I learned that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was Good friends. friends with Thomas and Alito and, and you know, and, and, it's just and, and amazing Scalia was her closest. So why right, is Scalia right. and Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Why are they the closest of friends? You know why? Because they're the two smartest. <laughs> they are. Let's just be honest. They're the smart ones, and they're right. like that. You know, and and again, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is confirmed ninety nine to one in the Senate. Ninety nine votes to one. Those days wow. are gone. Yeah, they're gone. Time? But I love the fact. You know, the book isn't about her Supreme Court decisions. There's no, like, mm-hmm. abortion rulings in a kid's book. What the book is about is, you know, we think of Ruth Bader Ginsburg as this kind of serious Supreme Court justice. But when she's a little girl, she's grown up in Brooklyn, New York, and she just wants to go on adventures and climb mm-hmm. trees and, and roller skate and go on her bike. And But back then, they're like, girls don't do that. That's what boys do. You, girls can't do that. And it's her mother who breaks that stereotype. Her mom is the one who says, we're going to go to the library every Friday afternoon. She would take her to the library, tell young Ruth Bader Ginsburg, get five books. Pick any five you want. Mm -hmm. And among her favorites are real heroes, Amelia Earhart, stories about Harriet Tubman. And in that, she finds the best lesson she ever has, which is there's nothing that a girl can't do. And I want my daughter to have that lesson. I want my sons to have that lesson. And, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg didn't learn that lesson, you know, in in law school, how to fight back. She didn't learn how to how the to stats of how many women were there in law, you know, it was yeah, like a was couple staggering. of women in a class of hundreds, you know, just like a, Yeah, there's less than 10 women in in her law school class. There's so few women, there's no female bathroom. There's no girls' bathroom I mean, at Harvard time. or Columbia. In fact, when she's nominated to the Supreme Court, there, even though Sandra Day O'Connor's on the court, there is no women's bathroom in the uh, the robing chamber. It's not there. And then she comes on, and she's and they're like, okay, we'll get one. And magically, they get one. But 
those are things we all agree on, right? We all want that for our kids. We all Mm -hmm. want, you know, her, her question that she asked is what type of life do you want for your daughter and your granddaughter? That's the question. Mm-hmm. And to me, there's no arguing about that. So I, I I love the fact, and I should mention, when I was in law school, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, daughter was one of my mentors. So I knew, this is the first hero of mm-hmm. all the heroes we've done. We've done Jim Henson and Mr. Rogers, Dolly Parton, Billie Jean King. This is the first hero who I knew before we ever wrote about it. Mm-hmm. So we were even uh, at a wedding. We were both the witnesses at a um, at the signing ceremony. We signed the marriage certificate. So it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg and I are the witnesses, and we're back there. My friend's in a big white dress, and we're in this little tiny, tiny room together. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg is signing her name on the marriage certificate. And I look at my friend, and I'm like, "Do you really need me at this point? Like, you got her, <laughs> man. Like, what are you doing?" Right. Um, but it was great to like just. I never got to tell her. My one regret is I never got to tell her that we were doing a book about her. All right, now are you going to do, you have 68 more to I go to hit the marks? So are you going to do some people that you have met or are you sticking to the old formula? I haven't met that many people. I mean, I, I mean the, I don't know. It's a good question. I never thought about it. I mean, I'm trying to think of who I, I'd love to do Barbara Bush one day. Mm-hmm. She was just a badass, you know, and her fights for literacy were, she and I recreate, if you want something funny, put in my name, put in Brad Meltzer, Barbara Bush, and Lucille Ball in the internet, and we recreated, Barbara Bush and I, the Lucille Ball, I Love Lucy chocolate conveyor belt scene. We recreated it together. Oh my God, what year did you do that? Uh, it was, it had to be, let's see, she died, how many years ago did she die? She died after my mom. My mom's been dead 15 years, probably a decade ago. Okay, so we were, we were just watching some old Lucille Ball clip yeah, on put Instagram it in. yesterday. You'll That's see, um, it was meant to be, you conjured it. Uh, and and we were in, it, what was so funny is the whole plan was again we we did a lot of work with them for literacy, and Barbara Bush was always nice to my mom. She knew my mom was sick. She was always really always asking about her. And Barbara Bush, um, I said to the staff, I'm like I'm going to dress up like Lucille Ball in drag, and then we'll do the conveyor belt scene. And they're like yeah yeah we'll clear it with her. So they check it with her. They're like she's in it. She wants to do it. I'm like great. So we go do this event together, and then they put Mrs. Bush and I in the car together, and we get in the car. And Barbara Bush looks at me and says, so what are we doing now? And I realize in this moment that either she's completely forgotten or no one's actually asked her. And now I have to explain to her, well, I'm going to dress in drag like Lucille Ball and eat about a thousand chocolates in your office. And to her credit, she's like, that sounds funny. Let's do it. And it's the funniest. You'll see what's on the internet is one take. You can hear the staff laughing because they're like, they're cracking up there. And she was just a great straight man. So she, oh, that's great. I have heard some great behind the scenes. I think Meacham wrote a book on her husband, H.W., and he had some great stories about her behind the scenes. So. Uh, Meacham's great. He's a good friend. We like him. Um, so switching gears a little bit, you've done a lot of work in graphic novels and comic books as well. Can you talk a bit about that? I know you did Buffy the, ha- the Vampire Slayer and a, a number of things. Uh, yeah, no. So, I mean, I, I love... So since my very first book... I've been hiding comic book references in them, and only the true nerds find them. Like, and and I'm not talking about putting like Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne in there. Like, I'll put in like the secret identities of the Justice Society members of the Legion of Superheroes, or like, if you find it, you're a nerd friend. Like, you you're it's a deep cut. Like, I'm not going to make it <laughs> a easy. Deep cut. And so I remember when uh, Kevin Smith, the the, the director was um, writing Green Arrow at the time. And it was when nobody thought comics were cool. This is like 20-something years ago. Now comics, of course, are like the Marvel Universe and everyone loves mm-hmm. comics. But back then, it was just us nerds who liked them. And Kevin Smith was the only person outside of comics writing comics. And Green Arrow was their number one 
comic book superhero at the time. And Kevin Smith said, I'm leaving. I'm leaving the book. And my fourth book was coming out. And I, again, only the DC comic people knew I was putting this stuff in there. Like, you'd have to really know. And the last person in line at my book signing came to the front of the line, waited to the very end. There was an editor from DC Comics. And he said, listen, um, Kevin Smith is leaving. Would you like to write Green Arrow? And I looked up at him and I said, I've been waiting my whole life for someone to ask me that. <laughs> and 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 he said, "If you, if, it's our number one book, superhero book at the time. If you take it, you'll either fail on a big stage or you're going to succeed on a big stage. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm jumping off the diving board. I don't give a crap. I will. I don't care. Let me go. And I did. And um, thankfully, it was really embraced. And then they gave me Justice League of America, and they let me write Superman and Batman and Spider-Man. And, mm-hmm. um, and I love my job. I love writing thrillers. I love writing the kids' books. But when I get to write B-A-T-M-A-N and put words in Batman's mouth, I'm wearing my underwear on the outside of my pants that day. Like, right? That is just the most awesome day of work. That's tough. That's so great. I love doing that. So um, every every few years I go back and we'll do another book. And now we're doing one called Ghost Machine, which is a, a new comic book company we're launching um, with basically to be owned and operated by ourselves, by creators. What, do you distinguish between graphic novel and comic book? I'm, I'm seeing the graphic novel category seems to be growing a yeah. bit. Um, David Duchovny was in recently. He wrote a graphic novel. It seems a little different from comic books, but how do you think about those two? Are they I different think or the same? It, it's the same. It's same. just a snobby word okay. for a comic book. Like People are like, I'm in graphic novels because they don't want to say <laughs> I'm slumming in comics. Like To a comic book, like a graphic novel is just a long form one. Mm-hmm. But if you take four issues of a comic book and put it together, does it matter? Does year one become a graphic novel? Sure, because you want to make it sound hoity-toity. Mm-hmm. But to me, I I still love calling them comics. I don't care. You can call them graphic novels, but that's just window dressing. Yeah. All right. Last question before I get into process, because I'm I'm dying to get into that. But I want to ask you quickly, to the extent you can share it, what's can you talk about your work with the Intel community? I was fascinated. Yeah, to learn this that was a detail. crazy. Yeah, this was a crazy one. So I got a. This was right after nine eleven happened. I got a call from the Department of Homeland Security asking me if I could come in and brainstorm different ways that terrorists could um, attack the United States. And my first thought was, if they're calling me, we have bigger problems than anybody thinks, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, you if you write that, if man, you write, but... uh, I mean, right, exactly. I mean, and and I was just like, but it was after nine eleven, and when you have a group of terrorists who are taking a plane and turn it into a, a kamikaze missile, they basically were like, we got to think of everything, mm-hmm. and they brought together what they call out of the box thinkers. They would pair me in a room with a, a secret service agent and a, terror, and, a, and a chemist. They would give us a terrorist scenario uh, or a target, and they would say, here's a city like New York City. Go destroy it. And I would come up with my crazy way inside, and then the secret service would say, here's a better way to cut through security. And then the chemist would say, let's use this chemical. It'll dissipate less quickly in the air. And by the time we were done, we would destroy a major city like New York in a half hour. Wow. And you don't go home feeling good. You go home terrified. But to me, what was even more fascinating was, um, and this I don't talk about, but they kept calling me after that. It wasn't just one day. Mm-hmm. And then they were like, here's the target today. What would you do here? And I'm like, do you know something I don't know? Do I have friends at this place right now? Mm-hmm. And I, and it was it was super creepy, but super amazing. And, and obviously honored to do it. I do a lot of work with the USO, a lot of work with the government over the years, but that and was the Help them develop the playbook. I mean, are you, are you still doing that? I don't. They, they, they shut, it was called the Red Cell Program, if you want to look it up. Yeah, um, yeah. They shut Brad it down. Brad was involved with that Yeah, too, Brad's right? a dear friend of mine. I love Brad. Um, and it was like me and it was Brad. There was a bunch of directors um, and we all did it. None of us together. They always kind of separated the novelist. The directors were always like separated. So my day, there was I was the only creative, quote unquote, creative person there. 
Mm-hmm. And they, whatever, again. You know, they should reconstitute it and keep it. I mean, I wish Israel had been doing it months of ago. Of course I mean, think we about needed, these guys of course. coming across the way. I mean, they, and yeah. that's what Red Cell is all about. It's basically trying to take the scenario that you don't think about and then are you ready for it? You run this imaginary scenario to see if you're ready. Yeah. So it has its benefits. The thing that you never knew is, are we hot? Are we cold? Like, what are we in this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously honored when they ask and happy to do it. And yeah. if they ask again, I do it again. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So on to process, I do have a couple specific questions, but yeah. something you said earlier made me want to start more wide. You talked about loving the process. What is it about the process that you love? You know, well, I say I love the process. Um, the process kicks my ass every day. I mean, I've been at this 27 years, and every day that I sit down to write, it's hard. Every day. And my wife always says, she's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep a diary of your books. She says, because at some point, a lot, in any novel I'm writing, my wife will say that I will come to her and say, this is crap. This is total crap. I can't do it. I'm washed up. It's done. It's over. And she says, and then you turn the corner and you finish the book and you say, oh, this is good. This one came out good. And then you start the next one. You're like, this one's crap though. <laughs> and then it comes out. And like, that's my process. Like yeah. I need to crap on it and find, and it is crap. It is. But yeah. to me, if you've, if you come out of your book on your first draft and you say, Oh, Meltzer, you've done it again. (laughs) You know, like your book is garbage. It's garbage. And so that to me is the process is, is finding the flaws in it. And when I get, and I will tell you, when I give my book to my friends who have been reading my books for years, while trust won't lie to me, they'll say, oh, this is a good one. My first question to them every single time is, what don't you like? And to me, that's how you become a good writer is saying, Mm -hmm. what don't you like? And figuring out what the bad parts are. Yeah. Got to force that, uh, that honest, tough love feedback. So a couple of more technical questions then. Do you write by hand or do you type it in? I outline by hand. I research mm-hmm. all by hand. And when I, I mean, I researched like a lunatic. Like when we did a book, the reason I was friends with George H.W. Bush is he wrote me a letter one day um, out of nowhere, the greatest fan letter I've ever gotten. Um, and it said, and when I used to, my first job when I was 18, 19 years old was in the House, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee. And I used to work in the office where they had the pen signing machine. Mm-hmm. So we would take the senator's pen signing machine. It was this guy actually named Joe Biden at the time. But I would take the pen signing machine and they signed the me. The pen signing machine is how you respond to the many letters they get? And it's I, yeah, it was every senator, every senator in the Senate, when you get fan, like the mail they get, they have a pen signing machine that sends a letter back that they okay. can sign. And I used to take the pen signing machine, take the Senate Judiciary Stationery, and I would write to my friends and tell them they were being deported, and you know, <laughs> sign them up. And, George and I was, and I lived in Miami at the here. time, so they were, it was serious. <laughs> they were like, "Oh crap, I'm being deported." Um, so when I got the letter from George Bush, I'm like, "Oh, someone used the pen signing machine on me. This is a joke. This is the payback I got." Mm-hmm. So I called the office and I was like, "Listen." You know, someone there wants a free book. Because it said, you know, we love your books. Do you mind sending us a signed one? I'm like, someone there needs a free book. Just tell me how to get it to them. And they said, oh, you got the president's letter. I'm like, wait, this is real? This is real. And yeah. I was so shocked that the president of the United States, you know, arguably the most 
powerful person on the planet is, you know, one day the most powerful person there, and the next day has to stop at red lights like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Like, this is, he's left office. He's over and done. He's so bored right now that he's writing to me. Like, that's how bad it is. And I said to him, of course, I'll send you a book for you, Mrs. Bush. But I said, can I come see what your life is like? And he was like, yeah, come down. So I spent a week in Houston with the Bushes, unprecedented access, riding in the car with the, just the two of them and the Secret Service. Like, Secret Service, like, who's this guy? What a great follow-up question. But it was that the, was so smart of you to do yeah, that. Yeah, and it was, I didn't know what he was going to do, but he, he loved the books. He's like, come on. Yeah. And um, we became dear friends. What year was this? This was, I know the book that I wrote with him came out in, let's see, when was that? 2008. So this was probably 2005, 2006. Mm-hmm. I, it was... It was, I could tell you W was in power because I was in his house with them watching, um, watching all the news stations rip apart their son. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there with Barbara and George Bush and they're, you know, we're all watching, you know, the president get ripped apart on cable news. They're watching their kid. Yeah. I'll never forget. And, and the point of this whole story is I'm sitting there with a notepad that I'm writing in by hand. That's always by hand. And then I'll outline about 150 to 100 pages at a time, but then- once I organize all that, then I type. I type the book, but everything else is done by hand. Yeah. Quick, quick side story. I can't remember if this is George H.W. about W or W about H.W., but one of them was saying, you know, it's, certainly it's rough when they're coming after me, but it's much rougher when they're coming after him. Yeah. To, no, no, no that's, that, that's H.W. about W. H-W I mean, about yeah, w. he always said it was the, that's the thing. He's like, I got the thick skin. I don't care. You say whatever you want about me, but not about my boy. Yeah. All right. So back to the process, though. So for, uh, so you do a lot of research. One one thing I want to ask you for for this book, the the Escape Artist, this thriller, which was so good, I tore through this over uh, over the holidays. And your your main character, Zig, uh, works in the mortuary. His forensic knowledge, and therefore your forensic knowledge, is extensive. So are, are you interviewing for that, or how, how did you? Yeah. So I went. I do a, a again. I think I said um, a lot of work with the USO, and, and um, the USO used to bring during the war would bring six thriller writers every year over to the the war zones. And I think I was in the third tour of it. And at that point, it was actually Afghanistan was getting crushed. So they took us to Kuwait at the time and and Oman and Qatar and, and Turkey. And we were going around ent- entertaining the troops. And that was where Dover Air Force Base first came on my radar. And I didn't know anything about Dover. I know we've all seen those flag-covered coffins that come back mm-hmm. with fallen soldiers in them, but I didn't, know, I didn't know they were all coming to one spot. And Dover Air Force Base, as I found out, is the most top secret, you know, incredible mortuary that the government has. And so it takes, yes, all our fallen troops, but it's where the space shuttle astronauts went when the space shuttle went down. It's where all of our um, our CIA agents or anyone, our 007s, our James Bonds and, and spies across the globe, when they die on a mission, their bodies come to Dover too, mm-hmm. which to me meant Dover is a place filled with secrets. And I was like, I want to know about that place. So I contacted Dover Luckily, someone there read one of the books and said, come on in, we'll, we'll let you in. They gave me unprecedented access. I was there and I said to the, um, the morticians there, I said, here's what I want to do. I know I want a body of someone to come back from um, wartime and I want like a secret note or a secret message or secret something hidden on the body. So have you ever had that? Because I always find that for me, I don't need to make it up. People who live these things have a far better experience than my nonsense imagination. I said, so have you ever found something in someone's pocket or like a tattoo on someone? And one of the morticians there said to me, well, and this is true, if you're on a plane and your plane is going down, that if you take out a piece of paper and you write a note and you eat the note, that the liquids in your stomach will protect that note when you crash. 
I'm like, oh, that's a really cool idea. And they said to me, that's not an idea. It really happened. And I was like, oh, I'm using that. And so that's, you know, like Mm -hmm. I basically, Mm -hmm. you know, Zig is my mortician who works at Dover Air Force Base. This body comes in. Um, this woman named Nola Brown, who's he knows when she's you know a young girl. He was friend. She was friends with his daughter when they were twelve years old in Girl Scouts. The body comes in. He wants to take care of this dead soldier, this woman whose body is a fallen soldier. He's going to show her the dignity and respect that it deserves when you're a fallen soldier. And he knows she's been killed, and he opens up the body, mm-hmm. and um, and he sees that there are scars on her that. You know, should be on her. He remembers it's something on her ear that she got a scar on. The scar is not there. Right, the ear. Yeah. He opens up her body, and there's a note inside the stomach, and the note says, "Nola, you are right. Keep running. Keep running." Yeah, it's, it it's says, a great and, way to end the chapter. And, too. It's, and it says, and he realized right there, Nola Brown's not dead. She's on the run. Yeah, uh, she's the escape artist. I just ruined chapter one of the escape artist too, but uh, that's chapter <laughs> one. Um, but that to me was all done. I didn't make it up. That was all research and everything you see from Zig in there. Almost that was all a great like inhale when I got to that. Keep running and but the whole scene is written with such authority that i knew it had to have been real well that, the that's book the thing is full is, of that stuff the whole book is full of stuff written with the authority that you know like this is coming from a guy who's been in red cell or you know this stuff is yeah, deeply I mean, researched and real i'm just you know i think that we as a generation as a as a society although it doesn't seem like it right now but we have more access to information than any society before it mm-hmm. um the problem is we can't really tell what's true or real anymore but somehow we do know and I do still believe this at its biggest level. You know when someone's bullshitting you. You know you know when someone's just, and and when you hear a real, real truth, you know it's real. Mm-hmm. Like, and to me, I can make up whatever. I could say there are tunnels below the White House, and they run all the way from Washington D.C. to Disney World, and and you would make that face. You're making you like, oh, that's cute. You know, you know that that's just not true. But if I tell you that you're in the ground floor corridor of the White House, and there's a statue of FDR. Make a a left through that statue, and you're going to be in a room filled with chairs that are stacked to the ceiling. And that's where they store all the chairs to the state dinners. That's why all those chairs are there. But go out the door in the back of that room. You're going to smell the White House flower shop in the air. Go down this long hallway, and you're going to see that the HVAC equipment's going to come down from the ceiling. The ceiling's going to lower, and the floor is going to lower, and you're going to be in the basement of the White House as it slopes downward. Make a right-hand turn at the dead end. You'll see a steel door. And that's the entrance to the hidden tunnels below the White House. That's the bomb shelter entrance. That's where they took Dick Cheney on 9-11. And you know that's true. Mm-hmm. You know I didn't make that up. And it is. That's where it, I won't tell you where it goes out. That's another book. But like that to me is the fun of, you know, even though I'm, I'm writing fiction, when I can arm that fiction with reality, yeah. everything else becomes real. It, it comes through with so much more force on the page. It, it really does. Yeah. So actually, that, that's a good segue into what we were discussing just before we poured tequila and started here, which was fiction versus nonfiction. And you've done both incredibly well. Your preference and, and maybe some of the differences between doing the two. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the truth is, is I love doing the kids books because they're just my soul in book form. So those are, I, I'll put those aside because that's a gift for my children. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I am Ruth Bader Ginsburg and I am Mr. Rogers. Those are something that like I'm trying to put some good in the universe. But between a thriller and a nonfiction book like The Nazi Conspiracy, you know, a, a real life true plot of uh, to kill FDR Stalin and Churchill. I love doing both. Um, but one is to me like just easier than the other. Cause in that, in that Nazi conspiracy book, I just got to follow what happened. You know, even in a book we wrote for the, the Lincoln conspiracy, the plot to kill Abraham Lincoln, just follow Abraham Lincoln will tell you what happened. This is where he was on this day. You got to find some details you can't find, but the plot's there. 
Mm-hmm. I got to make it, you know, move faster and pull out the boring parts that everyone leaves in and I'll make it move faster. But it's all there. The work is like that percentage is done for me. The hardest thing to do is a thriller for me because it's yeah. just a blank page. When I sit down and write chapter one and I'm staring at a blank page, I'm like, oh boy. Yeah. I don't know where, is it going to go this way? Is it going to go that way? Like, and, and that is, it's more rewarding because it's the house I build with my own hands, but it's so much harder. Yeah. yeah you're, it's a great point. The plot is done for you and not You just have to hopefully do justice to it. Right. And you got to find, and, and to me, but the funny thing is I don't treat them differently. A good story is a good story. Mm-hmm. I mean, even when I'm, even when I'm working with something that I'm not making up, but me finding that through line of, you know, Elmore Leonard, may he rest in peace, said that writing a good book was about is skipping all the bad parts that people skip over. Mm-hmm. That's how you write a good yeah. book, right? I think he had like a corollary to that, which was like, they never skip over the dialogue or something right, like right. that. Right, right, the dialogue and, yeah. and don't write weather. And he has all these great rules that are yeah. that are wonderful. But I love that idea of like, just skip the boring parts. Yeah. And even in those nonfiction books, like it is an art form. I do believe, I, I believe everything at its highest levels is an art form. Mm-hmm. And I do believe even when you're writing nonfiction, it's so easy, the traps are so much easily set because- you can just be, you can get caught up in navel gazing at your research. You're like, and then on January 20th, he took a carriage right here. And I'm, I'm like, boring. Like, where's the action? Where's the tension? Where's the character? What's he doing? Yeah. What's he worried about? And I don't think I could write a good historical book, a nonfiction book, until I learned how to write a thriller. You are right. It's all storytelling. We're doing fiction, nonfiction, even journalism. You're conveying information to someone. You have to do it in a way that's going to draw them in. And and, and that's what law school was for me. Law school for me was not, I didn't. You know, people think lawyers are like, you bang the table and you yell, I object your honor. And you know, like, that's just not what it is. What a lawyer does on a day in, day out is you're trying to advocate and tell a story. Mm-hmm. At least that's what I see it as, you know, and and, with, and making that case is trying to convince someone of something, is trying to get that story and, and convince them what it is. Yeah. Um, one other thing you do great on the uh, on the fiction side that is hard to do, again, this harder than the nonfiction is right with humor and your mm-hmm. character zig is funny there are a couple laugh out loud moments i had in the book and that is so hard to do yeah that to me is like you, you know the funny part is is every time i write a book the first editor is my wife mm-hmm. and my wife the number one thing she cuts are my jokes she's like you are just not <laughs> as funny as you think you are i'm like i am so freaking funny you have no idea and so i just like add double the jokes and then i know she's going to cut half of them mm-hmm. but you're seeing the selection process of the very best of them. They're not all winners when, before it gets to you. But I, I, I appreciate that. I mean, and I think, listen, that's how life is. That's how life is. Like, if, if you're going through life on your day, on any given day, and you don't laugh, you're doing it wrong. And to me, why would I ever want to read a thriller where everyone is humorless? That's just not how people are. Yeah. We're all, you know, and not everyone is sarcastic. Not everyone is like, you know, some Seinfeld character. But- I mean, even when I was in the military in Dover, yeah. like there's gallows humor. There's funny totally. stuff. It's amazing. The, the cops in the military have that classic gallows humor that DeMille does so well, yeah, too. You know? Nelson's a good friend. He's great at it. I mean, and yeah. but but that's how Nelson is in real life. Nelson, if I hope, I, you know, Zig and Nola, I've realized over time, you know, Zig is a character who believes that if you want to, if you're a good person, you'll make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. That's a, a beautiful idea. It's a completely naive idea. But it's an idea worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. And and Nola believes if you want the world to make sense, you grab it by the throat and you force it to make sense. Because especially when you're dealing with injustice and you're trying to fight for something that matters. And that's also a, a, an idea worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. And I realized, I, I did not know this when I wrote The Escape Artist. But what I've realized over time is I'm Zig and I'm Nola. 
I'm 100% believe you make the world a better place by being a good person. And I also 100% believe that sometimes you got to throttle someone and force them to believe it. And all I'm doing in these books is trying to figure out which version's right. And the answer is, of course, they're both right. Like no one person has the answer. And all you're seeing is my own kind of two views of the world trying to square themselves. Well, it's a great book. So listeners should be getting The Escape Artist as well as I Am Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which are uh, two great books. But your last comment about your wife being your first reader is a good lead into our last question before the lightning round, because your wife was a lawyer. Mm -hmm. So you have this sort of living view into the sliding doors of your life had you gone through with Columbia Law School and then practiced law. So are you how do you size up your career path to this point uh, I don't even, with that view. The funny thing things. is, I, it's funny. I've, when you say the word career path, it sounds like a plan, right? Like my career path makes no sense. Like <laughs> I, if I was a smart person, I'd write a thriller every single time. That's how you make, mm. you know, good thrillers. People are, get ready and they're used to January means this. I'm going to go buy the new Meltzer book and that's, and I don't do that. I write a thriller this year and next year I'm going to write more kids books and the year after that I'm going to write more historical books because that's just what I like. Mm-hmm. So I, the only thing I've done is, again, I'm not to, I think I've just, when, when I want to jump off the diving board, I jump. And sometimes I jump for fiction and sometimes for not. But if I could tell you this, if I was doing the same thing every single day, I'd hate my job by now. In fact, one of the biggest writers in the country, writes a super famous character, um, once said to me, he said, if I have to write this character again, I want to put a gun in my mouth. And I was like, oh my gosh, I never want your life. You have so much more success than I have as a thriller writer. You have so mm-hmm. much more sales, blah, 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 all the things. I never want your life. I never want to hate this thing that I actually enjoy. Yeah. And that's to me- So that, I will ask you after the show who that is, but I have a guess. Um, okay. But on to the lightning round. Yes. Your favorite book as a kid. Uh, my favorite book as a kid, as a real kid, was Judy Bloom, Tales of the Fourth Grade Nothing. That killed me. But really, it was Agatha Christie when I got a little older. Yeah. It was it was Murder at the Vicarage was crushed me because it was a dead body in chapter one. Mm-hmm. And I was like, who did that? Who done it? And I've been asking my question since. You know, she could be the topic for a future thriller or nonfiction book. I want to do both. disappearance that she did. Yeah, it's a crazy story. It's a crazy story, yeah. It was like the... the- I mean, news all around oh England yeah and she's like a super rich woman disappears mysteriously like yeah. that's a, half the plots of my books all right book or books you're reading now um okay so what am i reading now i just my favorite book this year is tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow i love that book um i just finished animal pound by tom <laughs> king um i read a lot of comics a lot more comics than um so i and uh i just finished uh saga by brian k vaughn i read every month i love that book I read, um, and then I and then I I'll always lapse into kind of like whatever my kids are finding interesting. So I, I like reading with my kids. So I read, um, oh, I loved Addie Larue. I love that book. That book was a killer. Uh, the I don't know, it's, a, it's not the Many Lives. It's like the Secret Life of Addie Larue. It's about a woman. Uh, I won't read it, but you look up you Addie. You read LaRue. that with your kids. How old are your kids? Uh, so I have a twenty-two-year-old a 18-year-old and a 15-year-old. So right now I'm rereading Sandman by Neil Gaiman with the youngest. Mm-hmm. I read um, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn, whatever her name is, with my daughter during the summer. Um, my oldest is just cares about if Michigan wins tonight, so he's not reading anything right now. But I try to like find something, and I don't even mind rereading. Like Sandman, I'll reread. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then what else am I reading right now? Well, that's great to, to experience a book with, with each of Yeah, because like you get that. to see it through their yeah. eyes and then you get to like compare. And it, it sounds like a perfect father kind of thing. It's really hard to pull off. My daughter's like, I want to read a stupid book with you. So I have to kind of like <laughs> figure out how to get in there every once in a while. All right. The least attended book event. Okay, of so yours here it is. Ever. This is it. It is in Houston, Texas, 1997. My very first book comes out. Zero attendees. Zero. Not one. Zero for the first hour. Nobody's there. At the hour one mark, which I'm still there for, sitting with this, God bless this bookstore owner, book people, David, um, two people come. It's my friend from law school who brings her mother. And we sit with them for the next half hour just laughing about the fact that there's only two people here and I know both of them. <laughs> and the only great part is, is I still go back to Houston to that bookstore and now we have this great crowd there and they still attend. And I always point to them and say, and they were here first when none of you bastards were here. And it just is <laughs> the, me it now. kills. It's so great. That's uh, great. I love these stories because, you know, everybody- Everybody, oh, yeah. Uh, let's see, the wildest method of terrorist attack that you've considered that you're at liberty to discuss. Uh, you know, we're, I, I will tell you there was a point in time where I wanted to, I can't say what it is completely because I feel like one of mine I felt like came true, but there was a point in time where I wanted to to drop um, a, an unnamed pop singer. I was like, just give them this unnamed pop singer and that you can't take it back. You can't. And that was my, it was a crazy idea, but I've seen it done now. And I'm like, I can't believe someone almost did my idea. It's so good. It's so bananas. I'm like, cause once you see like, you know, like someone shaking it like that, you can't just be like, well, I never, I'll unsee that. Um, yeah. And everyone was like, that's a dumb idea, Brad, but it's happening. It's crazy. Historical figure you admire most. Um, Abraham Lincoln. Nobody beats Lincoln to me. I mean, I'll, I'll take Mr. Rogers as a, as a, you know, I think he's historical, but Abraham Lincoln, I could do it. I've written a, two different books about just him, kid's book and adult book. And I still have things that I couldn't put in the books because there's so many good yeah. stories about him. Yeah. Favorite few recent TV shows to recommend to listeners? Yeah, I would sound cooler if the Golden Globes weren't last night. I'm all my favorites won. Uh, Succession I loved. I loved The Bear. I loved Beef. My wife and I are doing, I never saw Justified. I never watched it. Um, and I love that right now. I think Graham Yost is just writing the hell out of that show. I haven't um, seen Justified. I'll check it out. Oh, I, I never watch it because I don't like Westerns. I just think like, oh, I've seen that genre done to death. Mm -hmm. And I put on the first episode and it's not a Western at all. He just wears a cowboy hat. It's set in modern time. And I was like, what? And it's a great show. It's really great. All right. Last question for Brad Meltzer. Oh, wait. One, wait, one other favorite. My favorite show on TV right now is uh, Blue Eye Samurai. That's a great show. I don't know that one either. Okay, That's I'm getting some good recommendations show. from you By today. My friend Michael Green is, did it. Okay, last question for Brad Meltzer. One piece of advice for the listeners on any topic. I'd say this. I had 24 people who sent me rejection letters, 24 people who told me no, who said, you can't do this. And I don't look back on the experience and say I was right and they were wrong, you know, and ha-ha on them. That's a pig-headed way to look at it. What I look back and realize is that whatever it is you love to do, don't let anyone tell you no. Don't let anyone tell you no. And whether you want to host a podcast or write a book or write fiction and nonfiction or what, you know, be a teacher, stay at home, whatever you do, don't let anyone tell you no. I think that that is just the key. You got to leap off your diving board wherever it is. Um, but you can only do that if you allow yourself the grace to say, you know what, I'm going to find my way to the wall. I love that. That's great. Brad, thank you so much. What a pleasure. Thanks, Doug. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you.
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.